My apologies, I see that we were supposed to have the scripture reading before the song, but we will read that now. Our scripture is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. If you recall, last Sunday afternoon we looked at the account of the transfiguration, and now we look at the story or account that follows that concerning the failure of Jesus' disciples to live up to their calling, as our sermon title summarizes. Our text will be verses 37 through 45, but we will begin reading at Luke chapter 9, verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they had come down or came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I beg your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how many are there in the history of the world that have never reached their potential? Specifically those of whom it was said they were destined for great things, but they never achieved 
them. We think of many examples on the positive side of things, great statesmen, war heroes, even athletes who have trained or uh, focused on a specific goal and have got there through their work and their diligence and their integrity. But there are many, of course, whom it would seem would have reached the same end and for a variety of reasons didn't make it. Sometimes circumstances prevented them. But many other times, this type of person is simply lazy or does not do what they should. Surely then in the church, where goodness and righteousness flourish, this ought not to be seen or even expected. Check yourself. History has taught us that some of the greatest disappointments are amongst those who claim to follow the Lord and who eventually fall and even bring great shame to the church or, in some cases, to the office that they represented. And we see this afternoon, congregation, that Jesus' disciples themselves fail to live up to their calling, to what Jesus Christ himself had appointed them. And yet at the same time, it is not sufficient for us to merely focus upon the negative aspects of our text, but also to see by way of contrast the glorious perfection of the leadership and saving work of Jesus Christ himself. So these are the things we want to see this afternoon. We see at the opening of our text that Christ returns to his work. You will recall last week, that Peter, in particular, did not want to return to the world with its trouble and its trials that were awaiting him and his Lord. But Christ himself sets the example. His calling is to shepherd the flock with diligence, to have compassion upon those who are lost, to those who need his help. And as our Lord descends the mountain with these three men, a great multitude meets him, Mark tells us that the scribes were disputing with the disciples and a crowd had gathered around to listen. But now as they see Christ, they want to speak to him or to see how he will respond to this disputation or problem. And we see then in our text precisely what it is. A man cries out to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 38, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. His son, his only child, is possessed by a powerful demon. This man here appeals to Christ. Not only because he believes that Jesus can help him and his child, but also because he has requested the help of the disciples to do so, but we read in our text they could not. This is our first point. Jesus' disciples failed to live up to their calling as we see their loss in the spiritual battle. They could not exercise the demon, they could not cast him out. Not that they would not. They wanted to. They had the desire to. 
But they had not the power. They failed. Now, there are two things we must note before we say anything about precisely about what the disciples failed to do. The first is, though, we do not see an extraordinary power here beyond what the Gospel of Luke has already revealed to us. For there are many accounts of demon possession in the Gospels. Nevertheless, what is revealed is a demon with incredible influence over this boy, controlling him. And we see in the other accounts of demonic possession that the people were very afraid of those who were possessed. In other words, this is a very serious thing, clearly. And something that is beyond the power of the disciples in and of themselves to deal with. For, secondly, apart from Christ... This is important. They could do nothing, as Jesus himself says in John 15. No wishful thinking, no group empowerment, no amount of effort expended by the group themselves, that is, would be sufficient. They could not do it. But at the same time, we must remember what we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus commissioned his disciples, the twelve disciples in particular, to do many things. One of those things, we read there in Luke 9, 1, he gave them power and authority over all demons. There we read of no limit or limitation put on their ability to deal with the spiritual world. In fact, we read they have power and authority, namely they have the ability and the right To do so. And we see specifically that it was given to them. It was gifted to them. Which implies permanence to this power. It's not just a one time thing. This was their work. This was their commission. To battle with the spiritual foes. The demons and Satan. So that the kingdom of Christ could be expanded. Grow and fill the whole earth. Their main duty was not to go to Jerusalem to dispute with the Pharisees, nor to Rome to speak to Caesar, but to battle with the forces that are the greatest in the world besides God and His Son. But they had that power. They had that ability. Those two words, therefore, could not convey the verdict A failure on a massive and abysmal scale. You see, if they could not do so, then the church truly has no leadership, no one to guide her. For what what, what other reason is Jesus teaching these disciples than to prepare them for that leadership? And in addition to that, how could they now preach the kingdom of God? to which they also were commissioned, in fact, which was their primary purpose, if people knew that they had failed. Oh, you know those men who are talking to you right now? Who are talking about this this Jesus? They couldn't even expel a demon. Why should I listen to them? They're not worthy of being heard. In addition, congregation... Is not their failure somehow also Christ's failure? Even if one were to say it wasn't our Lord's fault, which it certainly was not, it might certainly look 
that way. That he did not teach them properly. Perhaps he hadn't given them the right instruction. Perhaps he had not given them a sufficient amount of power. Perhaps he had not given them enough time to develop their gifts and sent them too quickly into the world. They weren't ready to do such a thing. You may well know that there are many disciples at this time who follow their rabbi, their master, their Lord. That is beyond Jesus himself. He's not the only teacher. And it was very common and expected for disciples to do the things that their masters did and to teach as their masters did. But if there's a problem with the disciple, where are you going to go? It's like looking at a child. There's no discipline in their life. You go back to their parents and often... The fact is is that the parents are responsible for not properly raising or disciplining their child. This is indeed the worst thing of all, isn't it? That our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His name would be dishonored because of the failure of His disciples. But you know, this isn't the first time this has happened. Throughout the history of God's people, the leadership has failed. The leadership has failed. We might even see in this story somewhat of a reflection of the story of Moses on the mountain when he received the Ten Commandments. And you know, as we spoke about last week, he had that glory, or at least a portion of God's glory revealed to him. And it shone in his face as he walked down. A very glorious picture, isn't it? But what did he walk down into? There Israel was worshipping a golden calf. And what was Aaron, the high priest, who was appointed to ensure the holiness of the people doing? He had gone right along with it and allowed it and even supported it. We recall to mind Saul, the murderous king, whose heart was bent on conquest, but not pleasing God. He wasn't a very good king or leader for Israel, was he? And then we think in Israel's history time and time again of all those other kings who committed blatant idolatry. What did the scriptures say? They led the people into idolatry. You know, the same thing can happen today. Office bearers who don't live up to their calling. And I speak, of course, here very broadly. Some who even fall terribly. And you cause some within the church, having looked at their example, to say, I want nothing to do with the body of Christ and never return to worship with the people of God. If they can't be faithful, why should I abide? Well, congregation, as we said, all these things are true. But then we need to meditate upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. For even the best office bearer has only a small reflection of what Christ can, has, and will do. We do well to remind ourselves of the promise or the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary concerning her son, Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we read that he would receive the throne of his father, David, In addition, he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom would have no end. That king can never 
be unseated. That king would never lead his people wrong. Put your trust in Christ, congregation. Put your trust in him alone. And pray that your office bearers would indeed be faithful to their Lord. However, the perfection of the kingship and rule of Jesus Christ does not excuse the failure of the disciples. And so, secondly, we see the rebuke from their Lord. Now, there's some difference of opinion amongst commentators regarding this point, specifically to whom Jesus is speaking. The first thing we need to note, however, is in verse 41, Jesus answers or replies. What is he replying to? Well, obviously, to the words of the man who came to him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not, which would indicate to us he's speaking, therefore, to the disciples. We would be wrong to think he was responding to the man himself, for Jesus never rebuked anyone who came to him seeking his help. And if you look at the parallel account in Mark, you will see that Jesus, in fact, encourages his faith there. That is the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So it cannot be this man. Could it possibly be the scribes, to which we referenced earlier? Again, not in Luke's account, but in Mark's account, who were disputing with the disciples. Perhaps they were responsible for the failure of Jesus' disciples. Well, that is possible. But again, they were only disputing. They were not the ones who failed to cast out the demon, even if they had been mocking the disciples and become a stumbling block to them. And certainly it could not be the crowd. For they came to Jesus, seeking his understanding and wanting to see what he would do. No congregation. We should understand that these words are primarily for the disciples themselves. Now I say primarily because Jesus does say or speak of a generation which implies a larger group of people. But if you look at Matthew 17, verse 20, now Matthew's account, we see that when the disciples ask, why could they not cast out this demon? Jesus answers, because of your unbelief, which is precisely what he says here concerning the generation. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus there said, if you had faith, As a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Nothing would be impossible for them. So Jesus says that his own disciples are unbelieving, are faithless. Now with with respect to what are they being charged with unbelief? Did they fail, perhaps, as some might say, to believe in themselves? Did God have faith in them, as others might say. The answer is no, absolutely not. For Jesus says that this type of demon cannot come out except through prayer and fasting. In Matthew and Mark's account, prayer and fasting are outward observances to God. When you pray to God, you ask Him in faith, To heal, to save, to give, 
or thank Him or praise Him or love Him. The faith that they failed to have was believing that God could do this thing that they could not do as we've seen through them. God condescended throughout history, throughout redemptive history, to heal and to restore through human mediators. The Father was willing, but they didn't believe. How terrible. What a failure. Jesus says, you are faithless, you are unbelieving. In addition to that, he says, they are perverse, meaning they are corrupted or have become distorted, much like a piece of clay on the potter's wheel, if he does not pay attention to it, will, will warp and become something he did not intend it to be. Here we speak not of God, of course, but of the disciples themselves. Now, we don't know what the disciples had tried to do with respect to the demon. We don't know what they said. We don't know what motions they went through. But it's apparent that they tried something. And it is also apparent that their faithlessness had distorted their vision. They were being defined here as crooked and twisted. Even the men who had been taught by Jesus Christ himself and had seen him cast out demons. In other words, they were sinners and allowed their sin to get the better of them. And so Jesus asks questions. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Now, William Hendrickson, one commentator, sees the suffering of Christ here. Let's think about this for a minute. You and I may be frustrated with unbelief and doubt in the world or even sometimes in the church. Perhaps office bearers when you're visiting or, or your pastor when he's visiting, whatever, you're talking to people and sometimes people express their doubt and you say, what's wrong with that person? Why don't they trust in the Lord more than they do? But how much more would have been suffering for Christ, who always believed, never doubted his Father in heaven, to hear these words, that is suffering, congregation. To be and abide and to bear with these men who had seen display of his glory time and time again, who had heard his words of encouragement, he had given them the power, and now they failed. How long do I stay with you and put up with you? There's some irony in those words, aren't there? In particular, how long shall I stay with you? Christ was going to leave, at least with respect to his human nature. His body would be put in the grave and his spirit would, would ascend to his father in heaven. He was going to die. We heard that last week and it's repeated again in our text this afternoon. I am going to leave. And you're not ready because not only am I going to die, but I'm going to ascend later bodily. And you will never see me again. When will you be ready to take up this task that I've appointed to you? Oh, how those words would sting. Oh, how that would hurt these men. That their Lord 
would say that to his disciples. Now, did Jesus say that out of frustration? Did he lose his temper? Was it out of mere anger? Or was it out of love? We trust that it was out of love. Christ always did everything for his people out of love. The truth can come sometimes in a very hurtful way. And by that we mean that we are, when we are confronted with our sin, whether from the pulpit or in an individual way, that hurts. We can claim that person has wounded us. But the call, especially of office bearers, particularly the minister, is to rebuke sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes with authority. He has to do that because he loves the sheep. And if he doesn't ever, he doesn't love the sheep. Sometimes it is necessary to be hard in order that we might be softened. That's what Jesus is doing here. Indeed, we see that very clearly. If we should doubt it, that he does it out of love, we see that very clearly in the third point. That despite this chastisement, this young boy receives his gracious restoration. And notice, in a sense, the kind of halting way in which Jesus speaks here in our text. Oh, unbelieving and unper- or perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. In a sense, knowing what we know, or having heard what we have heard, Jesus says, I will heal him. I will do what my disciples could not, did not do out of faith. I will save. I will restore. I can and I will. Therefore, we see the saving power of Christ and his compassion. Even in the midst of the failure of those who were called to serve faithfully, Jesus said, I will make up for their errors and their shortcomings. Indeed, ask yourself, what would have happened if the Lord had not been there? You say it is a hypothetical question, but he didn't have to be born of Mary and to live his life on earth and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't have to. There's nothing in this world that would compel him to, only the will of his father, and he obeyed. But with respect to us, he didn't have to come. But he did. Here, and I say this in the most reverent way, Jesus is picking up the slack for those who failed. But it's not a small thing. It's not a little error. The disciples have left this family in complete despair. Father and his only son There's not some small debt to pay here, but a monstrous power that seeks to kill and to destroy. It's a demon. It's not epilepsy, or at least by itself. It's not some sickness that perhaps they can go to a doctor to cure. 
Even as the child is brought forward to Jesus, the demon convulses him in the grip of his power. But notice here what Jesus does. He rebukes the demon. You say, well, yes, of course he does. But Jesus does not, through prayer and fasting, cast the demon out as he told his disciples to do. His absolute power reigning over the demon. His gracious restoration, healing the child, and then giving him to his father. Don't miss the importance of that word. He gave him, he gifted him back to his father. The child restored. His father had said in another account that since he was a young boy, this demon had oppressed him. John Calvin notes we ought to call to remembrance the consoling truth that Christ has come to bridle Satan's rage and that we are safe in the midst of so many dangers because our diseases are effectually counteracted by heavenly medicine. And that is so important with respect to the work of the disciples. When the church fails us, when fellow Christians fail us, when office bearers fail us, Christ is faithful. Lean on Him. Now with respect to us and to our calling, therefore in response to what Jesus does here, we know that demon possession is not common in our day, if at all, here in North America at least. We notice that in the Gospels, more than anywhere else, the demons are active. And that is rather obvious or clear when we think about the fact that Jesus had come to crush the head of the serpent. And so, in a sense, Satan was throwing all of his forces at Jesus to stop him from going to the cross. So why not now more than any other time, that is, in the days of Jesus' ministry? But we ought not to forget that demonic activity or satanic influence is still alive and well. Satan still has power to deceive and to corrupt. In particular, to tempt the disciples. And so since we can't cast out demons, that power is not being given to us, what are we to do as disciples? Again, in response to what Christ has done. Well, we are to pray. That's our weapon of warfare. When we see sin in our lives or in the lives of others, we need to pray. For them, we need to intercede. The Lord promises to bless that. We need to trust in Him. Because again, we're not trusting in ourselves. We're praying to our great King who can save. That's our confidence. But then, of course, the other response is precisely what we see in our text in verse 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They were marveling that all or at all that Jesus did. And how could one not? Now, we don't know whether these people had true faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they just liked the the show, as it were, that they had just seen. But it really doesn't matter, does it? Because they recognized that God was working amongst them, that he had power. Christ's restoration ought to bring about amazement and wonder in our hearts. Is this our understanding? Notice or note Colossians 1.13 where Paul gives thanks to the Father 
For he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Do you give thanks for your deliverance from sin, the power of Satan? Do you give thanks to hear of the deliverance of others? Is this a common thing in your homes to pray, to thank God? Do it. Do it this evening if you haven't. Thank the Lord for his mercy and his grace. Finally, congregation, in our fourth point, we see yet the disciples' failure in to live up to their calling, specifically their incapacity to understand. Now, presumably, the disciples themselves had marveled along with the rest of the people or the multitude. If not, they certainly heard what the people were saying. And they might have said to themselves, look how the Lord has helped us and saved us from failure. But we see that Jesus has, in a sense, a different agenda at this point, something else that he wishes to focus upon. And we note that his words in verses 44 and 45 are specifically to the disciples. In fact, in the original, there is repetition of the you, so it's specifically for them. I want you, the teachers of the church, or future leaders of the church, to understand this right now. What is it? Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Literally, put this in your ears. Put it. Keep it there. Meditate upon it. Understand it. And believe it. Don't be lost right now in the glorious display of my power. Do not be so thrilled and amazed by my authority over Satan that you forget this thing that I've already told you, but I want you to remember again. Namely, that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Our Lord is going to leave us? After our failure, when he had to make up for what we were lacking? How are we going to go on? Well, Jesus is telling them precisely how. They are not being rejected. They are being prepared. You think about that for a minute. Could our Lord have rejected them? When they failed to cast out the demon. Could have said, you know what? You were unfaithful, so I'm not going to work with you anymore. I'll find some better men out there that understand what I'm talking about. Leave my sight. I don't ever want to see you again. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he continues to instruct them. I want you to understand this, he says. You know, we're the same way too, aren't we? Oh, we know the gospel. We know that that Christ died for sinners. We know that his blood atones for sins. We know that the wrath of the Father was placed upon him so that his wrath might not be placed upon us. I know that his righteousness is imputed to me by faith alone, apart from anything I ever have done or will do, 
It is all of grace. It is all of mercy. But we forget. We get interested in something else, whatever it is. We are told to put this in our ears. We're disciples too. We may not be apostles. We're not, but we're disciples. Put the gospel in your ears. Know this, that Jesus Christ died. And we may give in to the idea of, of glory in the churches that is revealed today. All about outward things and manifestations of power. But not the hard things, as we learned last week. The hard things of the gospel, which is that Christ had to die upon the cross. That is at the center. In other words, in connection with the events of our story this afternoon, Satan was defeated, truly defeated at the cross. Jesus, taking that demon or casting the demon out of the child, would save no one. That child was free from demon possession, but not from his sins if Christ had not died. It was not by rendering payment to Satan that our Lord died. But rather through that death, Satan's power is broken and his kingdom is eroded and fading away. And even now is he rageous, specifically against the church, having escaped the bonds of his imprisonment, yet the serpent is doomed. That's the word of the cross. You are done. You are finished. For Jesus says it is finished. Indeed, it is the atonement of Christ that sets us free from condemnation itself, which is precisely what Satan wants to do. He wants to tell you that you are not freed from condemnation, that you are still damned for your sins. He is an accuser by nature, and he would love to turn a child of God from the confidence they should have in Jesus Christ. Put the gospel in your ears. Let that, as it were, stop the words of Satan. You are right with respect to myself, but not with respect to my Lord, because I believe in him, and he has saved me, and he promised to keep me against you and all of your power. That's the wonderful message that sometimes we forget or don't completely understand and we need to revisit it again and again. Notice that. When Jesus said this, the disciples did not understand what it meant. Further failure on their part now as disciples with respect to grasping in faith this instruction. More so, we read it was hidden from them, which indicates that it had to be revealed in order for them to fully understand. They were culpable. They were sinning in a sense of not understanding it, but at the same time, God had not yet given them full understanding. What we see here then, as someone has wisely pointed out, we should not think of the disciples as apostles all the time. We know the rest of the story. We know what these men become by God's grace through the empowerment of the Spirit that they were able to proclaim the same gospel that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed. But at this point, they are students. They're not yet teachers. The same for us. We are all students of Christ. And even our leadership 
of the church that can and must be relied on. It is supposed to be faithful. It is supposed to serve God. But not to the exclusion or eclipse of Jesus himself. You see, all of us are yet not cured of our unbelief and our doubt. We believe, and yet we still have unbelief. Even the disciples, it says, were afraid to ask about these things. Let us therefore continue to learn in the school of Christ. Let us continue to grow, even in the things we already know, to search the scriptures and to learn through the word of God. Congregation, though we may or even sometimes be rebuked for our failure or sins, we cannot or may not conclude that it depends upon us in the final analysis, that if we respond in the right way, then everything will go right in the church. Rather, we are reminded in Ephesians that Jesus is perfecting his people, is sanctifying her. Fallen and depraved sinners, reborn, and yet also being renewed. That's what sanctification is. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Let's never give in to the thought that because there are problems amongst ourselves and even within myself, that it's over. The Lord will preserve. The Lord will uphold. Trust in him. Amen. Let us respond now by singing, respond to God's word by singing number hymn or hymn 43. And we will sing all three stanzas of hymn 43.